This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 9th of September 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. Hello, I'm Vincent McAvinney, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. Welcome to Monocle on Saturday, wherever you are listening in the world. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global newspapers with Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Yasmin, what's caught your eye? So we have a story about the earthquake in Morocco. We'll be talking about the G20 and the updates there, an exhibition on Coco Chanel and a cat burglar somewhere in Wales. But not the kind of cat you But not expect. the kind of cat burglar you might expect, exactly. Yeah, great. Yasmin, that sounds good. And we'll also have this. It was established back in the 70s. A group of college students and uni students moved up from Sydney and they just found an old town and created this cooperative. Monocle's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaks to Angus Dowling of the Australian band Bay Rainbow. First, though, here is the news. Hundreds have been killed after a powerful earthquake struck central Morocco overnight. The quake, measuring 6.8 on the Richter scale, was the biggest in the country's history and sent people rushing into the streets in Marrakesh and other cities. Footage shows damaged buildings and rubble in the streets of the Medina, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has officially opened this year's G20 summit in Delhi. Leaders of the world's 19 biggest economies plus the EU are in attendance, including Presidents Biden, Macron and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. They'll be discussing climate change, debt restructuring, food security and the war in Ukraine. However, Presidents Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have stayed away. A US judge has denied a bid from Mark Meadows, a former Trump aide charged in the Georgia election conspiracy inquiry, to move his case to a federal court. Friday's ruling against the former White House chief of staff means the case by Fulton County prosecutors has survived its first major test. Those are the day's main headlines. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm pleased to say I'm joined in the studio by Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Yasmin, thanks very much on this sunny, hot, unseasonably hot day in London. It's possibly going to be our hottest day of the year and it's September. Yeah, Yeah. it was even hot on my way here and we're not even, we just hit 9am. So, you know, there is, the sweat will be sweating. Yes, indeed. Um, But now uh, we've had a leaf through the papers, haven't we? And one story actually we're going to start with that hasn't made the papers because because it happened last night at around sort of 11pm local time, is this uh, earthquake in Morocco. Yeah, this is the story that's sort of on the on the front pages online of all of the websites because it's the strongest earthquake in a century um, in the in the country, and they said it's hit a number of I think six different provinces on the Atlas Mountains in the centre of Morocco, close to the city of Marrakesh. And if anyone has been to the city of Marrakesh, you would know that it, we're talking lots of very old, fragile buildings, very um, small and windy alleyways, and so on. So. 
the fear and the concern that the 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 death toll will increase at the moment it's just over 600 but with the construction of the city and so on it looks like the death toll will continue to rise and there have been um condolences and so on from leaders all over the world in fact israel has said that they will be sending support and aid very soon um and the the foreign ministry of israel said they were they were in contact with authorities in rabat um but I mean, it's just devastating. I think when we're thinking about, you know, climate change and we're thinking about the various ways that big natural disasters will continue to increase, as we have seen over the last few years, these sorts of things, the one in one, the biggest earthquake in a century, so on, this will sort of continue to happen. And I think um, the ways in which we find routes to responding uh, will become more and more challenging. Mm, Yes. And there's some... Clips uh, going around social media showing damaged buildings, rubble in the streets. You know, people poured out into the streets when this happened. We've both been to Marrakesh. If anyone hasn't been, I mean, it is like being in a maze. Uh, It is beautiful, but it is also quite a claustrophobic space. And I think if you were there and that was happening without being able to run into any kind of open area, it must have been pretty terrifying. Exactly. And typically in an earthquake situation, they tell you to sort of stay inside and stay somewhere where you can sort of be protected. But if you know, if the whole area is um, uh, constructed in such a way that what you usually would expect would protect you, the sort of walls of a building and so on, mm. are actually the the risk, then I, I also don't know if people knew how to respond. I think if you're from an earthquake-prone area, typically you might know how to respond to an earthquake. But if there hasn't been a large earthquake in in decades in lifetimes, then you're in a situation where you panic and that panic as well Mm. makes it much more difficult for help to arrive. And obviously there's lots of tourists from all around the world there and many of them, you know, live in areas where you're not used to having an earthquake. I've seen reports this morning from people saying that they just simply didn't, couldn't kind of get their head around Mm. for a while that they were in an earthquake. It would be a real kind of panicked experience. Definitely. And this one was said to go for several minutes. So you're, you know, in, in that environment as well several minutes feels like a lifetime Mm. you know so so i think it would have been an incredibly terrifying evening for everybody yeah well turning now to this weekend's big event and that is the g20 meeting uh in delhi now this is a meeting of course of the world's 19 biggest economies plus the european union president prime minister narendra modi has really kind of pulled all the stops out to try and make this a huge event he of course has a a re-election campaign coming up next year. Um, What's caught your eye so far? It's only the uh, sort of start of the discussions right now. That's right. The big news, the big sort of positive news is Modi inviting the African Union to join as a G20 member. And this didn't come as a surprise because it's part of Modi's desire to to really bring the global south into the conversation and into the main economic mix um, and and powers internationally. But of course, on the other side, um, you don't have two big names, Russia's Vladimir Putin and China's as Xi Jinping. And there is some, you know, of course, we understand maybe why Vladimir Putin might not be there. But Xi Jinping not arriving or not attending has caused a little bit of controversy. There's a sense that this is, I think, um, there was a foreign policy expert online who uh, said that this is an 18 trillion economy snubbing a 3.5 trillion economy. So this is this is seen essentially as China maybe saying to, to, to India, you know, 
think about where your place is. You are not the, the largest economy necessarily in, in Asia. Mm. Um, and, of, of course, there are some foreign policy disputes. There's um, a border along the Himalayan region. Hale, yes. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, there was, exactly. you know, recently hand-to-hand pretty brutal combat between the two sides and everything. I think it is really interesting. Obviously, Vladimir Putin, uh, we know, unlikely to attend given the war in Ukraine. I mean, he didn't go to the BRICS summit, but that was because South Africa is a party to the yes. ICC. India is not. So he could have traveled there without mm-hmm. fear of being uh, ar- arrested. Uh, but it's quite interesting. Xi Jinping, I mean, he went to the BRICS summit, but he didn't deliver his own speech. He delegated that to the Premier, the Premier. Li Kuang. Mm-hmm. He didn't go to the ASEAN and China summit this week either. And he stayed home here. I mean, there are there is rumors and talk, mm-hmm. isn't there, about is there something else going on? Is there maybe a health issue? I mean, it is very strange that he didn't go to this. Yes. And I think the rumors will continue. And they must have known that there would be rumors, right? Because um, the the absence of a, of a major um, leader will always bring up questions. The, whether I, I don't know if we necessarily have enough information to be able to draw actual conclusions beyond the speculation, but it will be interesting to see, okay, what will be the next opportunity? We'll actually see him in person and not only just see him in person, but where he will sort of, he himself be delivering. And and I guess I'm also curious whether, and, and I don't know at this stage if I would be able to ascertain, what is the response within China mm. um, of his absence? Like, is this a notable thing for Chinese? Well, there has been pickup. There's been less public appearances. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is in the domestic reporting of the BRICS summit, it claimed that he had given a speech and not Li oh, Interesting. So that is a mm. very interesting kind of thing. The to plot watch. thickens, the right? Plot thickens, the plot thickens. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and just on the G20 as well, they produce these huge mm-hmm. communiques. We understand that pretty much all of the paragraphs uh, have been agreed uh, apart from one, and that is the section on Ukraine. You have Prime Minister Narendra Modi coming out in his opening mark saying that the, the world needs to rebuild trust. Mm-hmm. But India itself is in a quite a difficult position when it comes to Ukraine because it hasn't uh, denounced it. It has a close relationship with Russia. It's still mm-hmm. buying Russian oil. So it's sort of the elephant in the room is here when it comes to trust is, well, you're deciding to ignore a war of aggression, a form of modern day colonialism, essentially, yeah. in the 21st century. That doesn't quite seem to match your ethos. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there are a number of things here. Um, India will do its best to try to minimise this, the Ukraine question, they might call it, um, by, by, by either, I think, you know, they might look at issuing a chair summary, which the host countries can kind of use to show a consensus on a majority of issues. I mean, of course, Arundhati Roy, who, who's a, um, an Indian writer, kind of spoke about all the sort of domestic issues that are happening in India that that are also being ignored in terms of the politics and so on. And so while um, it while it is very notable that this particular paragraph was on Ukraine was left blank, and while it is very clear that without some of the major leaders, it'll be difficult to show complete consensus on one of the most important geopolitical questions of the day, I think India will do its most to minimise that and, and to try to, to sort of push all the other questions, all, all the other mm. things that they've arrived to consensus with to the fore.
Mm. It is going to be a fascinating weekend. I've covered two uh, G20s in person and um, they, you, you know, these media centres are absolutely massive, mm. literally journalists from all around the world. But there's a lot of moments in them. Particularly, I love the family photo moment because when they bring them all together, and I remember being in the one in Argentina in, in 2018 and it was just after Jamal Khashoggi and sort oh, of yes. MBS was the mm-hmm. pariah, mm-hmm. but uh, Vladimir Putin went straight up to him, big hug and all of that. So he is uh, you know, going to be in attendance at this one. So it's, it's just always fun to watch, isn't it, how these leaders sort of get get together for this photo who stands where who's kind of posturing as we saw with Trump it's it's like the um this might be a strange comparison but it's like the political Met Gala right like it's that is a good comparison <laughs> I thought you're gonna go for the sort of high school cafeteria no, no, no. but yeah <laughs> well it's because everyone's on show right and we and, and everyone knows that they're being very closely watched but you know as you say where people stand how they speak to each other I remember when Trump went to his first G20 the ways in which all the other leaders kind of didn't want to hang out with him mm. um or sort of like and he'd pull kept them in distance. with a long yes, hang shakes. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah. I do think it is quite fun to watch in that way. I mean, putting aside the, the 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 massive political implications of everything, just seeing them as human beings interacting with each other because they are all because unscripted. It's, exactly. it's a natural setting exactly. for them. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to head to Australia now to meet Angus Dowling of the psychedelic rock band Babe Rainbow. The lead singer spoke to Monocle's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco about the band's origin story as well as their upcoming EP, Juice of the Sun. Angus from Babe Rainbow, what a pleasure talking to you. I'm a big fan of the band. I love the vibes. It takes me to Byron Bay in Australia. Uh, But first of all, remind us from the beginning of Babe Rainbow. I know you were one of the founding uh, members. Uh, When was that? Tell us a bit more, Angus. Yeah, the band started maybe close to nine or ten years ago. Just local, a few local lads. We all worked on a farm together and naturally just became good buddies and Best Brothers, and now, yeah, 10 years later, we've got the band kicking on. I mean, it's literally kicking on. I know you're about to go to the U.S. for a tour in a selected uh, places as well. And it's quite interesting. I mean, I know you're based in Australia. There's a lot of kind of influence from there, but you became a little bit of an international band in a way. We just have a lot of similarities with American West Coast Californians in particular, and I just seem to naturally you know, parallel each other. So we kind of spend a bit of time there and always pick up something, bring it back here and share the love. Well, exactly. And you, and you mentioned the Americans, but there's even more to your music. There's a little bit of surf pop from France as well. For this, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, no, right. Very right. I like that you brought that up. Yeah, because I definitely see the connection because I, I, I like this kind of surf pop from France as well. But in the new EP, Mushroom, tell us a bit about the influences of, of that EP in particular. Yeah, we were just trying to experiment with some newer sounds and different sort of landscapes and textures and stuff like that and break beats and drum machines and a little bit more um, electronica in there. And that kind of just went through our crystal and came out the rainbow. Even the 
festival that, that you're playing in the US? Will there be mainly new tracks? Are you going to play some of the old ones as well? Tell us a bit more about Rainbow Rock in general. So it's something we've always just liked like the sound of, Rainbow Rock. Getting a little community of great artists together. And it just, yeah, eventuated, manifested over in LA, which is cool. Good place for it. Ideally, we'll do it back in Australia too, in Byron, to see how things flow. But yeah, so it's just some great up-and-coming artists, mainly LA-based, I'm pretty sure. Just sort of hand-picked by us and some buddies over there. And we're really excited because we've never seen any of the acts before either. So I think it's just, yeah, a nice little collective of rock and roll. And by the way, talking still about the Mushroom EP, one of my favorite tracks, I don't know, for some reason I love Obsession, you know. There's a, uh, a gentle breeze yeah. in there. I love it. Yeah, yeah. We yeah, we try to you know, keep it calm and relaxed these days as we're getting older. And that's just sort of something our kids, you know, will listen to and they can sleep tightly, you know, knowing those groovy tunes. So, yeah, something a little bit less performancey, nice aspect to the EP. One thing, because actually, Angus, I am going to Australia for the first time this year, late October, and I'm considering mm. going to Byron Bay. Tell us about something about the, the place, how special it is, because in a way, even the name of the band is kind of connected, I mean, to the region. Perhaps I'm not sure if it's exactly Byron Bay, but I know there's a coastal yeah. town with the name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. It was established back in the 70s, a group of college students and uni students moved up from Sydney and they just found an old town and bought all of the shops and created this cooperative and had a huge festival called the Aquarius Festival in 73 and that just mushroomed into this whole vibrant rainbow community around here. It's still alive and strong 30, 40 years on so we're just sort of carrying on the flame. We're going to have a great time. I think you should definitely come here. Well, just because you said it, I will, I will go now, Angus, as well. So, um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe you told yeah, me yeah. That you t you told me that maybe Rainbow Rock could go to Australia, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sooner or later, I'm sure of it. Yeah, we're just you know the landscape is so inspiring around here. It just it's you know there's areas where the hippies called psychedelic valley where they used to have rock and roll and magic mushrooms and all sort of wonderful natural organic highs just popping up everywhere yeah it's it goes hand in hand with music this place by the way one thing that i'm enjoying about babe rainbow these days i know you released an ep earlier this year now there's another one it's nice perhaps you know you're not quite there yet for a full-on album but you know i think eps is such a great thing for the fans right do, do you do you enjoy that yeah, kind of strategy yeah. of, of releasing music via eps i think i think so Generally, historically, um, putting together albums takes a lot longer time for some reason. And possibly we've just got a bit more savvy with audio equipment and stuff like that. But it seems to be just much fresher experience putting out four songs at a time and just not, you know, not over engineering a whole album. But it's definitely going to come. But yeah, no, it's been it's been a lot funner just sort of keeping the pulse going. That's fantastic. Uh, listen, Angus, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for chatting with us. No worries, my friend. Thank you so much for the call. Oh, no problem. And yeah, maybe maybe I'll see you in Byron Bay. <laughs> I'm very yeah, excited. Up. Very excited <laughs> we'll to here. go. <laughs> <laughs> nice, my friend.
Well, thank you to Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. And Yasmin, uh, you are from, uh, or you grew up in Australia. Um, your view of the Australian music scene? Well, so I actually think the Australian music scene has, you know, it punches above its weight. Like if we think of, you know, especially some of the big rock bands that I grew up on, which is, I think, quite, I, th- I think my father never fully understood why his Sudanese daughter was really into, you know, ACDC and Cold Chisel and NXS and all of these sorts of very, very sort of rock bands. But um, somehow I think whether it's the ecosystem, the sort of musical ecosystem in Australia, we do punch above, Australia has punched above its weight in terms of producing acts that therefore kind of go around the world. However, I'm not always sure that people know that they're from Australia. Well, I've got to, we, and we were discussing whilst that package was on, I did not realise ACDC were Australian at all. I thought they would be like West Coast right. American. American. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. most people in Europe's view of Australian music is there was one particular pipeline for pop stars and that was Neighbours. You've the got TV Kylie show. Minogue, Natalie mm-hmm. Imbruglia, Delta Goodrum, <laughs> Holly Balance. They all had these huge followings here, particularly in the UK, because they came off that you know, and Kylie's still going sort of four or five decades in. Yeah. And I mean, Neighbours, what I find fascinating as someone who grew up in Australia, didn't really watch Neighbours and then moved to the UK. Neighbours has, you know, occupies a huge space in the cultural imagination mm. here in the UK. And For anyone not aware, it is a yes, soap in yes. Australia set in sunny Melbourne. Isn't set it? In, it was yeah. on every day of the BBC for 30 years, basically. Yeah. And I think they actually, it sort of came to an end and now they've rebooted it. So Yeah, like, Amazon it, has now yes, rebooted it with Misha Barton going <laughs> in to bring in a US audience, which is... So it's something. It's definitely something. <laughs> the crossover we never expected. That's uh, right. <laughs> right. Well, we're going to turn now to something that's going to be going on uh, in London in the autumn, and that is at the V&A Museum. They have a special exhibit coming on Coco Chanel. Uh, and as well as, of course, the legendary designs and uh, suits and, and uh, all of the uh, amazing beading and everything, uh, there is also uh, records that have been found about the designer herself. That's right. So this major retrospective has unearthed evidence that the fashion designer was a documented member of the French resistance. And they're going to be presenting these documents alongside the contradictory evidence that she operated as a Nazi agent. So this is something that, you know, this is controversy that surrounded Coco Chanel for, for a long time, the idea that she w- she collaborated with the Nazis and so on. Mm. But what's quite interesting about this um, is that they're, they're kind of saying that the picture is a little bit more complicated. They're not necessarily saying that she wasn't a collaborator, but she was also perhaps part of the resistance. And and um, the curator said, you know, we, we couldn't do a show about Chanel and not address her wartime record. But um, these unseen documents highlight the name Gabrielle, a.k.a. Coco Chanel, on a list of 400,000 people whose part in the resistance is backed up by official records. So it does have verification from the French government, but it is also alongside the strong evidence that, you know, there are there are transcripts of post-war interrogation of three Nazi officials who all separately name her as a trusted source. So I do think it's quite interesting, this complication of her, mm. of her legacy and also... And they spend some time exploring her childhood in this exhibition, which, you know, unbeknownst to me until until I read this piece in The Guardian, talking about how she spent time in a French convent after the death of her mother and the disappearance of her father. And so they sort of are making this argument that she, you know, rather than this being ideological positions necessarily that she was it's taking. A survivor mentality. She, it was a survivor mentality. She was doing what she, she felt like she needed to do. Yeah, because there's an interesting story. So, yeah, during the 1940s, she had a relationship with a Nazi officer, Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. 
hostage, but she leveraged that relationship to free her nephew from a German prisoner mm-hmm. of war camp. So it was, of course, of course, a very complicated time, isn't it? But just on the wider point, I mean, there's lots of discussion in this country about the reevaluation of museums, mm-hmm. what's included, how we tell the story of how things came, and the sort of you know the big curators who yes. you know where they drew their money from. Um, do you think it's important now to when you're doing an exhibit like this? Because we both knew, I knew mm. vaguely of the kind of did she conspire with Nazis? Uh, do you think it's important that they've addressed this head on? Definitely, I think that if they hadn't, that that would have been you know a big cloud that that sat over the exhibition. And I also think that what what is admirable about this approach is that it's not shying away from the difficult questions. And I think generally that's what people want at the very least is you know okay if the if you're going to acknowledge there is complicated history here, why not engage with it like critically and you know full throatedly so that you can therefore have a conversation that is much more informed and it is less about it's less about a moral judgment around the past and it is more about well how can we have a conversation about the present if we don't fully understand what happened and i think this is part of it i think it is and and you know, different. I think different institutions have different approaches. The National Portrait Gallery, for example, just reopened here in London after many years. Invested the other day. Yes, yeah, renovation. There's a lot more history There's around more the history. origin of the photos yes. and what was being depicted. And I think it's fantastic. You know, there was even a um, part of the new one of the new exhibitions that sort of looks at slavery specifically in in the portraits and the engagement of it in the history of British art and so on. And so from my perspective, as somebody who is from two separate colonies, you know, Sudan and Australia, I think when I come to to the heart um, of the empire, as it were, that's what you want to see. You want to see that engagement and acknowledgement. And hopefully also that is the beginning of some sort of move through. Mm. And one thing I learned recently, which is interesting, and so one thing you won't see in this exhibit, actually, is the pink suit worn uh, by uh, Jackie Onassis, Jackie Kennedy, on the day that JFK was oh. shot. And do you know that she actually, although we all think it's a Chanel yeah, suit, yeah, yeah. she wasn't really allowed to wear French designers as much oh. as she loved them. So what they would do was they would recreate Chanel, oh, but using American textile houses to make it. But that suit, which still has the blood on it, which she kept oh, wearing wow. when she was asked, you know, do you want yeah. to change? Because she said, no, I want the world to see yeah. what they've done to my husband. That suit is actually locked away for another 80 years. It can't be displayed in public till 2103. It's in the Presidential National Archive building in Maryland. Oh, so wow. none of us probably will live yeah, to see that I was that, literally uh, just Chanel calculating that display. and being like, will I ever? Yeah, I don't yeah. think we will. <laughs> don't think we will. <laughs> Gosh, um, how fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so turning now to something that slightly uh, affects everyone probably listening to this, uh, and it's an issue with iPhones and Apple tech. That's right. So Listeners might be aware of the Pegasus software, which was essentially revealed um, maybe last year or the year before. It's developed by an Israeli company, NSO Group, and used by foreign governments to surveil activists and dissidents and so on. And so it is spyware. Now, the question of how you get this spyware onto a phone or onto any of your technology, typically that had to you know, be done through a scam email or something along those lines. Whereas something now, clickable. Something clickable, exactly. That y- you have to do the thing. Yeah. Whereas now Apple has released a security update to patch a newly discovered vulnerability on the iOS that was used to install Pegasus spyware without any clicks. So it's called like a zero-click vulnerability. And this was found by a, a group called Citizen Lab, and they're sort of a 
I, I'm, I can't remember actually if they're a non-for-profit or not, but they're sort of an, uh, a pro-democracy activist type organization that looks for, um, that looks at misinformation and disinformation online and is also interested in privacy and security and so on. And so they discovered this um, while checking the device of an individual who worked at a Washington, D.C. civil society organization. And the thing is, I mean, so firstly, if you're listening to this, please make sure that you update your, your yeah, phone. Yeah, because I noticed actually this morning that there was a little, uh, one of the little badges on the general right. setting to say, do an update. Do an so update. it is important exactly. doing it. Because as well, the, another issue apparently is affecting Apple Wallet, which of course stores credit card and debit card information. Apple hasn't gone into any sort of detail about the vulnerability on that mm. system as well. So it sounds like this is definitely one that we all need to run. Definitely. And and. As a general rule, we we should definitely also be up to date on our updates. I know this now. I just sound like your your local IT guy, but <laughs> but I really but I really do encourage it. And I think it's a part of a broader. Um, I mean, it plays into Apple's positioning in the market as a privacy centered and privacy focused tech company. Where, whereas I think a lot of the other large tech companies that we might know of, whether it's Meta slash Facebook, Twitter slash X, you know, mm. um, Google slash Alphabet. Um, I think Apple is trying to position itself as a privacy-centered... Hugely. Because many of the adverts now, that's a big point. Mm-hmm. And then you have a sort of graphic where the Apple, it's a padlock and nice. it sort of clicks exactly. in and everything, isn't it? Um, and it's a week where Apple uh, and many tech companies are facing this kind of new EU system of being what they're calling gatekeepers. If they have a certain market mm-hmm. capitalization, certain usage, uh, then they have to abide by new sets of EU rules. And Apple has tried to make the argument, well, your new rules will breach our security system when it comes to iMessage, but it shows that even Apple, whilst it's trying to trade on this and even has taken hits on, uh, on the likes of Meta over mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. Uh, it's still struggling in the face of this uh, this software. Yeah, and it's a real challenge, I think, when you when you think about the the trade off between security and privacy, and this is kind of the the big conversation in the tech world at the moment. One of the many big conversations is. Uh, Companies um, or, or countries, shall we say, nation states and so on saying, well, we need to have access to private communications. We need to there has to be a backdoor into, you know, encrypted messaging or mm. whatever it might be in order for us to protect national security. On the other hand, you know, companies, um, activists, digital rights activists and so on are saying the moment you you open a backdoor, it no longer becomes safe and you actually don't know what you're opening up Two and this this was evidenced recently um, when Apple decided a, a couple of years ago in late 2021 they announced that they were going to scan iCloud photos um, in order to prevent against child sexual abuse imagery, right? And this was something that campaigners had pushed for, some campaigners had pushed for, and they said, okay, we're going to to see if we can make this possible. On the other hand, um, digital rights activists were like, if you start scanning iCloud photos for child sexual abuse imagery, what you're going to do is you're going to mean that we can scan everybody's photos for anything. Mm. And this, I'm pretty sure it was this week, they... Apple came out and said, we're no longer going to do that because we have found it's not technically possible for us to scan encrypted information without opening up other vulnerabilities. And so now this has become, you know, a, a huge kind of point of contention. And it'll be interesting to see how it pans out.
Mm, very interesting. Just very, very briefly, a story we just have to flag yes. before we go, and that is, when well, we've trailed it, so we've got to talk about it quickly, a cat burglar, but not like the kind you'd imagine in sort of black spandex kind of, you know, coming down the side of a building and cutting into a glass window. No, this is a cat that comes through the flap, as it were. So the feline thief Gingy, a four-year-old um, Maine coon, has been ransacking nearby homes in Buckley, Flintshire. And what I love about this is the owners have no idea what their cat is up to, but but every night, the, the cat has been coming back with items stolen from, from nearby neighbours, including what I love, an actual knife, and, <laughs> and, 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 and sort of deposited it at the, at the foot of their bed. So they've been waking up and finding that, um, you know, football cones and random balls and plastic Tupperware. And so I'm, I'm not sure if the cat is trying to sort of build a safe house or something, <laughs> um, but I've, I've really enjoyed the idea. And they, they set up a little camera right next to the cat flap and have sort of been watching their cat just casually wandering in with stolen items from all over the neighbourhood. Oh, hilarious. Well, that's all we have time for on Monocle on Saturday this week. Thank you to our studio engineer and producer, Mariella Bevan. My guest today was Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for listening. how many people get these things wrong. I go into a lot of jazz clubs and I go, what made you build it like this? Everyone's got an opinion about design these days. Join us on a journey to cut through the noise as we sit down with some of the design greats.